You're listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast, exploring the rich, flavorful history of Manitoba food and the people who make it, sell it, and eat it. From the packing table to the dinner table, from restaurant specials to grandma's secret recipes, we consider the cultural, social, and commercial aspects of Manitoba food and what it means to us. I'm your host, Kent Davies. As per usual, I'm joined by food and business historian, Professor Janice Thiessen. Hey, Kent, what's in the pantry for us today? Well, this episode is a bit of a departure from what we normally do on Preserves, which is, you know, we often focus on one subject or interview and try to do a complete long-form, you know, audio documentary production, and then we'll talk about it. But over the course of the project, we discovered there are a lot more interesting tidbits of information and anecdotes that really didn't fill, you know, an entire episode, but were valuable nonetheless. So we assigned one of our research assistants, Michaela Hebert, to help figure out how we could tell these stories, but in a bite-sized format. And she came up with a series of conversational segments with her and myself, uh, and we're calling that Crumbs. Yes, and one of the things I really like about this is that it highlights how personal oral history is. Different things will strike different listeners on the basis of their own past experience. So she has drawn out a couple of small stories from different oral history interviews that have struck her as particularly interesting. And it's, it's interesting to me how even such small segments of oral histories can be used to understand much larger issues within Canadian history. Yeah, for sure. And we're hoping to produce more of these in the project with students and others. So uh, our first segment has to do with ammonia cookies. Now, without giving too much away, have you ever made ammonia cookies, Janice? No, never. And I never will. Uh, my mother made those growing up and the memory of their production has put me off of them. We're going to hear why that is in just a second. Let's, uh, let's give it a listen. Hi, Michaela. I see you're baking something. What's cooking? What's that smell? That, Kent, is the smell of my Russian Mennonite culture. Not to be confused with Swiss Mennonites. I see. Um, Is it supposed to smell this pungent? Not usually. Ammonia cookies are very much the exception in Mennonite cuisine. Wait a minute. Ammonia? Like the stuff farmers spray in the fields? It's not that ammonia. It's a compound called ammonium bicarbonate, also known as baker's ammonia. It's a cousin ingredient to baking soda. It's kind of fallen off as an ingredient, so it's harder to come by, unless you go to a specialty shop like the former Riediger store here in Winnipeg. Here's what Betty Riediger remembers. And then they had so many things, imports from Germany, that the Mennonite ladies liked to cook with. You know, from the old country, they needed all these things. And especially when you bake cookies, I mean, where in the world would you buy baking ammonia? Because that's not something that, and yet quite a few of our Christmas cookies have that in them. And so at Christmas, people would come in especially for for that baking ammonia. Okay, this is starting to sound a little more appetizing, but why not save yourself the chemical headache and sub in baking soda for baker's ammonia? It's all about the end result. Baker's ammonia, like all leavening agents, produces carbon dioxide gas when heated. It's these gas bubbles that give baked goods their pillow soft texture. That said, baker's ammonia is really good at drying out cookies by venting out the moisture via those gas bubbles. The result in ammonia cookies is essentially a soft yet crispy sugar cookie. Even better, as food historian Sharon Hudgens points out, 
These cookies hold a shape well. This makes baker's ammonia a crucial ingredient in other Central European baking recipes, like embossed Springerlay cookies and Leibkuchen. Okay, alright, this makes sense. There's also the element of tradition. These cookie recipes are very old and actually predate the invention of baking soda and baking powder. Like, how old are we talking here? Pre-modern. Beginning in the Middle Ages, ammonium bicarbonate was derived by burning or dry distilling animal keratin like antlers and lime kilns. Before it was called baker's ammonia, it was called heart's horn from this process. After burning, the ashes were collected and stored for later use. Okay, please tell me this process has evolved and that there are no charred animal byproducts in these cookies. Don't stress, Kent. Today, baker's ammonia is synthesized by heating ammonium chloride and chalk. Well, that's reassuring. So how long did it take for baking soda to become the ingredient of choice? According to food historian Linda Civitello, American women were still using baker's ammonia in the years before the Civil War. The company that eventually became today's Arm & Hammer introduced their baking soda in 1846. By the mid and late 1850s, baking soda and baking powder were staple ingredients listed in cookbooks. And it's not just that baking soda was more readily available. According to Civitello, biscuits and rolls baked with baking soda eliminate the extra labor needed to ensure the items are uniform and will bake evenly. Another problem with baker's ammonia is that it can sometimes leave a pea-like aftertaste, presumably if too much has been used or the temperature wasn't hot enough to boil off the ammonia gas. Yeah, that's not too good. Ugh. I agree with that one. So when and where did ammonia cookies become a Mennonite thing? This all sounds more generic European thing to me. Well, you're not entirely wrong, Kent. Now, this is the part of the pod where I give a crash course on the geography of Mennonite settlements. Okay. One of the first Anabaptist movements popped up in what we today call Switzerland. By the 1530s, we see some Anabaptists moving into today's Austria and Czech Republic, according to Cornelius Dick. Hudgens does note that Springerlay cookies and Leibkuchen variants can be found in the food cultures around the Baltic Sea, a place where Mennonites ended up fleeing persecution in the Low Countries beginning in the late 1500s. And remember how American women were familiar with Hartshorn? The first Mennonites to immigrate to America got there in the 1700s. That said, it seems pretty likely that Mennonites adopted these cookie recipes from their neighbors if they didn't bring it themselves. And of course, there's precedent for culinary borrowing. We didn't exactly come up with Vareniki and Borscht on our own. We picked it up during our stay in Ukraine. Okay, that's, that's interesting. But what about a more contemporary connection between Mennonites and ammonia cookies? Like, um, are a lot of Mennonites still actively using this ingredient? Well, for my second piece of evidence, I'm invoking the third most sacred Mennonite text after the Bible and Martyr's Mirror. Which is? Mennonite Girls Can Cook. Okay, seriously? Hear me out. Mennonite Girls Can Cook lists at least seven recipes requiring baker's ammonia. Three of them are a peppermint-flavored sugar cookie, and one is for Leibkuchen. The fact that these recipes are still passed around tells me Mennonites are pretty attached to these goodies. So what do you think, Kent? You up for some ammonia cookies and milk? Okay, you won me over. I'll have a cookie. So, what did you think about the first crumb segment, Janice? Loved it. Still not going to make the cookies, though. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, according to scientists, smell has a stronger link to memory and emotion than any other scent. So ammonia cookies must be a vivid memory for you. For sure. It was one of the dozen or so cookies that my mom made for every Christmas. Um, but the smell, I didn't really identify until I was studying chemistry. And it is very off-putting. Yeah. Yeah, it's super fascinating. I'll have to try them again. Anyway, we have another crumb segment coming up on an ingredient used in many cookie recipes, uh, sugar. Let's, uh, let's have a listen. Hey, Kent, how do you take your coffee? 
Well, Michaela, I need a cup of coffee before I start answering any questions this early. Can't. It's 11 a.m. Well, it got me there, so I take my coffee with one milk and one sugar. Have you ever meditated on where the sugar comes from? When I think of sugar, I usually think somewhere tropical where sugar cane grows. You're not entirely wrong, but I was thinking something a little more vegetal and a little closer to home. Like sugar beets in Fort Garry? Like Fort Garry, Winnipeg? Precisely. Once upon a time, way back in 1939, an outfit called Manitoba Sugar was established to remedy the looming sugar crisis due to wartime rationing and generally bolster the prairie sugar beet industry by taking some of the pressure off coastal refineries in Vancouver and Montreal. Could they produce a lot of sugar though? That sounds like a pretty niche crop. Yes and no. According to a master's thesis by John Friesen, sugar beets first started to be cultivated on an experimental basis at the Brandon Experimental Farm in 1890. From there, growing was done in fits and spurts around southern Manitoba until 1920, when the emergence of a sugar beet industry in the northern U.S. kickstarted Canadian efforts. By the mid to late 1930s, sugar beet fields were a pretty common sight from Portage La Prairie to the Pembina Valley, with the industry really hitting its peak between 1960 and 1990. Okay, we have the beets. But how do we get the sugar? Well, after harvesting, the beets would either be trucked into Winnipeg or taken by rail, depending on where the farm was. According to Friesen, any distance longer than 40 miles required rail transport in order to become economically feasible. Upon arrival at the Manitoba Sugar Refinery, the beets were washed and then sent by conveyor to the slicer. After being sliced into french fry shaped pieces, they're sent to the diffuser where the beet chunks are swished around in water to force the juice out and into the bottom of the tank, with the spent beet pulp floating to the top. From there, the raw sugar juice is mixed with lime and carbon dioxide gas to precipitate out any impurities. Then, the juice is boiled under a vacuum until sugar crystals form. Finally, the crystals are separated from residual syrup by centrifuge and allowed to dry out before bagging. And how many tons of beets are we talking about during this whole process? Friesen states that the first year of operation saw Manitoba Sugar doing daily slicing capacity of 1,500 tons of beets. At the time of writing his thesis in 1962, the capacity was roughly 2,400 tons. In order to maintain productivity, Manitoba Sugar contracted farmers in southern Manitoba to grow a set number of acres of sugar beets for them. Here's what John Cool, former president of Southern Potato and Winkler, had to say about his family's flirtation with sugar beets. There was some years, I think we grew 700 acres of sugar beet. And was that strictly for Manitoba Sugar or anybody else? Just for Manitoba Sugar. Just yeah. for, okay, yeah. that's right. Yeah, that's the only place you could sell. They couldn't, <laughs> there was no other market. Eh? Manitoba sugar, sugar was the only market that there was for our sugar beets in Manitoba. Interesting. Their relationship between farmers and Manitoba doesn't sound particularly kosher in a legal sense, though. Ah, uh, you noticed that too. Well, you weren't the only one who thought so, Kent. Manitoba Sugar was bought by BC Sugar, aka Rogers Sugar, already in 1956. Not long after the acquisition, the company was taken to court by the Manitoba government for monopoly-related shenanigans. Ultimately, the case was dismissed and the subsequent appeal fizzled out. It's worth noting, though, that BC Sugar's luck did eventually run out. The plant in Winnipeg closed in 1997 as a result of the 1995 GATT negotiations. In essence, the U.S. gained the ability to restrict Canadian sugar product exports and implement levies on refined sugar. This is what John Cool remembers about the demise of Manitoba sugar. The U.S. had a, a sugar policy. Yeah. They got paid much better for their sugar than, than we did. You couldn't import. There was some sort of control, like a marketing control. Eh? get them in under a certain price because if you did you had to pay 
the difference. Eh? And I guess the plant maybe was getting older so that they needed to spend more money on it or something. Uh, we, were, we, we were not involved till the end. We, I think we moved out in 86. In the end, the Cools were just one of 230 sugar beet growers left high and dry. Luckily for the Cools, getting out of sugar beets early proved to be a great idea. They pivoted to potato cultivation and they now supply chipping potatoes to our favorite chip makers, Old Dutch. And the rest of the growers? Best I can tell, they all switched to other crops. At the time of recording, only Alberta has a sugar beet for sugar products industry, and it's the Rogers plant in Tabor. That said, Alberta sugar is still pretty sweet in my opinion. All right, but I gotta get another cup of coffee. You coming? Let's go. And we're back after learning a little about Manitoba sugar. So as Michaela stated, there are no more sugar beet farms left in Manitoba. Is that true? Yeah, the only remaining producers of sugar beets in Canada are in Alberta and Ontario, but most of the Ontario sugar beets are shipped to Michigan to be processed. I mean, is it a thriving industry? Like, is there potential for it to grow in Canada? Well, that's the hope of the Alberta sugar beet growers. Um, Canada only produces about 10% of the sugar that's consumed within the country, something that that group wants to change. They're pushing the federal government to implement a domestic sugar policy that would increase the amount of Canadian-produced sugar consumed in Canada. Well, we have more beet-related content coming with our last Crumb segment, which features interviews we did in 2019 at Canada's National Ukrainian Festival in Dauphin, Manitoba. We had a lot of fun there. It was fantastic. The food was excellent. Uh, There was outdoor baking. um, There were Cossack displays, of course, all the music. And we managed to interview a few folks as well about their unique experiences, either in agriculture or domestic Ukrainian food production or memories associated with a a Saradoc and their preservation efforts. It was a really good and tasty time. Uh, And we had a few folks on board the Manitoba food history truck to share their life stories and their recipes. Yeah, and one of those recipes will be the main subject of our last crumb segment, where we'll hear the voices and sounds of the National Ukrainian Festival in Dauphin and learn about a delicious dish known as beet leaf rolls. Hey, Kent, how do you feel about bread? I love bread. Easily a top 10 human invention. Now hear me out. What if we added beet leaves, dill, and cream to the bread? Okay. It's kind of hard to describe, so I'll let Linda Hunter from Osiradok explain. The beet leaf rolls, or as some people call them, beetniks, um, are, they look like cabbage rolls, but they're uh, beet leaves rolled up around bread dough. And uh, so you roll them up and uh, let them rise and don't wrap the beet leaf too tight or you'll end up with like barbells. And, and just put some onion and dill over them and bake them. And then when you serve them, you fry up onions and whipping cream and put whipping cream over them and that's how you serve them. Wow. <laughs> oh, those, yeah, I love those. A friend of mine's mother makes them. Betty Shimka is her name, and everyone knows she makes amazing beet leaf rolls. There are a lot of recipes, a lot of people use, um, they add other things, like they don't want it, the rich cream, so my mother always used farm cream, yeah. real thick. So I usually pick the beets the night before, so it's kind of, the leaves get a little softer, you know, so it's easier to wrap them. And then in the morning, 
I'll make the dough. So then basically what I do is just wrap it. You bake them until they're just slightly golden and they'll come out looking like this. And you'll see they stuck together. According to Shumka, sticking together is what good beet leaf rolls do. She also claims beet leaf rolls are unique to Manitoba. Well, Joyce Sersky Howell also thinks so. She's an avid collector of Ukrainian cookbooks from across Canada. Well, one of the things that was very unusual when I went to Alberta from Manitoba was my mom and a lot of our neighbors and everybody, we made them what we call beet leaf holopchi. People call them doggy bones and various things. And when I went to Alberta, people really didn't know about them. So whether it was just a regional thing out of necessity possibly, and like my mom, for example, would make bread on a day like this. I mean, if we needed bread, she'd bake bread dozen loaves on a hot day in the wood stove because that's what we had growing up. And, and then she would make supper would be these beet leaf holochi because we had the cream on the farm and, and we would have a roaster full of these things for supper. And I think it was a necessity more than, you know, you wouldn't find that in any Ukrainian cookbook, you know, in Ukraine. So they're only a Manitoba thing? I would say they're a little more pan prairie. But why is that? Do you want the short answer or the long one? Long, please. Let's start with the beets themselves. They're not native to Ukraine. Beets are believed to have their roots, pun intended, in the Mediterranean. The Greeks and Romans cultivated them for both the tuber taproot and the leaves. So that's a context clue right there. Based on a write-up by Texas A&M University's horticulture department, beets appear to have been a common crop across Europe roughly around the 16th century. I'm going to go out on a limb and say Ukraine counts as Europe. As for the Canadian connection, it's pretty straightforward. The immigrants just brought beet seeds with them. I should mention that beets are just really, really hardy. Author Brian Demchinsky states that his family grew beets and dill because they could withstand not only the cold of the Canadian climate, but the smelter smoke from the refinery in their northern Saskatchewan mining town. So Ukrainian immigrants brought beets with them, but you still haven't mentioned the prairie connection though. I'm getting there. The first Ukrainian immigrants to the prairie provinces by and large came from Galicia and Bukovina. Today it's the area of western Ukraine and a small chunk of northern Romania. These immigrants tended to be family units, a husband, wife, the kids, and maybe a grandparent or two. Even the grandparents? Yes, because leaving Baba to starve back in the old country isn't exactly an option. The idea of having land wasn't the only thing tempting to immigrants. Famine, according to historian Ivan Litsyak-Runitsky, was endemic in Galicia by the late 19th century. Already by 1880, the fourth famine year in 14 years, newspapers in Galicia were reporting the uptick in immigration. Famed Ukrainian activist Ivan Franco wrote a poem about how bad things were. Well, this took a very dark turn. Hate to break it to you, but it gets worse. Surviving famine is genuinely traumatizing. It makes you loathe to throw out food. Historian Marlene Epp noticed this pattern in Mennonite refugees after the Second World War, and Ukrainian Fest volunteer Jen Frickus suggests Ukrainians do too. So my baba, when she makes her first borscht of the year, she uses the stems of the beets and that's because it's early in the season, you don't want to waste anything. And that's actually how um, beet leaf rolls, or some people call them beetniks or beet leaf holopsy, that's kind of how that got started because really you use the beets for borscht, but the leaves, you don't really want to, there is nutrition in it, you don't want to waste it. Yeah, and so I think, because I, like, through doing this workshop, I've met People, like I've met people from Ukraine and US and across uh, the Western prairies and really um, many people haven't heard about it. It's not really something that was done in Ukraine 
but I think it's because there wasn't a lot when the pioneers came and so they really needed to uh, make the most of what they had. Considering the historical context of the situation, beet leaf rolls just make sense. When you remember what hunger feels like, and you have to feed your family with what you have because your new home is miles away from the nearest store, what are you going to do? The combination of leafy greens, complex carbs, and fat checks off three of the four food groups, and so Fricus's explanation sounds legit. Well, I suppose the creation of a delicious dish like this is a bright spot in an otherwise grim story. If it makes you feel better, beet leaf rolls don't have the taint of being a famine food anymore. If anything, they're a vital conduit for continued transmission of Ukrainian culture, as Linda Hunter argues. To me, it's, uh, it's a part of who I am, and so I would like somebody else to sort of take that on for me as a memory, you know, that, okay, you know, Bob and I did this together, and hopefully they'll do that with their kids someday, you know, that that would be a special memory that they would be able to preserve, and, and so, you know, a lot of that centers around food. So today, many Ukrainian Canadians consider beet leaf rolls an important cultural recipe to pass on to a new generation. That's right, and not just the ones from Manitoba. In fact, in recent years, beet leaf rolls have become better known across the country. They've been featured on national news sites and in popular Canadian cookbooks. Well, I for one don't care where beet leaf rolls are being served. I just want to eat them. All of them. Smudge no hokend. You've been listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast. This episode was produced, written, and narrated by Michaela Hebert and myself, Kent Davies. Hosted by Janice Thiessen and myself, our theme music is by Robert Kenning. Kimberly Moore creates the photos and images that accompany each podcast. Preserves is recorded at the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center. You can check out the OHC and the work that we do at oralhistorycenter.ca. For more Manitoba Food History Project content, information, and events, go to manitobafoodhistory.ca. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have a Manitoba food story and you want to share, contact us by clicking on the contact link on our website. Preserves is made possible by a grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Thanks for listening.